lot of the stories that we tell, a lot of the stories that we care about, um, superheroes that show up in comic books and movies like Batman and Superman and Spider-Man, all of these characters were all, in one way or another, orphaned. And why is it that so many of the compelling stories in fiction carry forward this idea of, of a fatherless person, a motherless person, who somehow finds purpose, usually through a family, is, is so compelling to us? Why are those stories so compelling to us? Well, I think it's because in one way or another, they all echo the one big narrative, the one big story. And that is, this world was made by a father, and it was made so that he could fellowship with his children in perfect love. But that because of rebellion, because of willful rebellion of the children, not because of any lack in the father, but, but simply because the children rebelled, the family was, was fractured, it was broken. So this world in some ways was a, a giant experiment in which the perfect family could dwell together in unity and harmony and peace. But because of what we call the fall, the whole thing fell apart, and what at one time was, it was a happy paradise where God dwelt with His children, that paradise became an orphanage. So that truly, all those who at one point dwelt in perfect unity on an eternal holiday with their Father now live in a dark and dreary orphanage. But God did not leave it that way. In fact, the story of human history is God transforming that orphanage once again into a home. And one day it will be a perfect home where once again we will dwell with Him, and it can't become an orphanage again. It will be forever eradicated. The renovation will be complete and eternal and irrevocable. That's the story of God. That's the story of the Bible from beginning to end. And that is why I believe that whether we are Christians or whether we are not, whether you read a story from the pen of a Christian or the story of a, from the pen of a non-Christian, it continues in one way or another to echo this big story. Because we are created in the image of God and the echoes of the divine and the echoes of His story keep resounding in human history and the human psyche. So today we will tell a story. Everybody loves stories. And I feel like by telling this story, a big view of God's story, that we will answer a big question. That is, how do we obey God's call to care for orphans? So if you don't mind, let's turn together to James chapter 1. James chapter 1 is James, the pastor of Jerusalem, also the brother of our Lord. This is, this is James' way of saying to the church, here's practical ways to live before God and, and practical ways to worship Him, practical ways to please Him, practical ways to serve Him. 
chapter 1 opens this up by calling us to true and pure religion. You see, religion in itself is not a bad thing. It's, it's simply whenever we try to buy God off through religion that we go astray. But, but James has something to say about pure and true religion. Look with me, please, in chapter 1, verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. So here's James as a pastor worrying about his people pursuing vain, worthless religion. Frankly, he had to have seen that quite a lot. In other words, they say they love God, but what he sees out of them just doesn't seem tangible. It doesn't seem real. It seems fake. It seems worthless. Then he says this. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God. So in contrast to false, empty religion. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, we are not going today talk about widows. We are not today going to talk about keeping ourselves unstained from the world. Those for another day. But today is Orphan Sunday, and we're going to focus on this call to care for orphans. But the big question for us is, why does, why does James put it here in the list? And why, why is caring for orphans considered pure and undefiled religion? How can it be that if you pursue that, how can it be that if you take care of orphans that you will know that your religion is not worthless? Well, it's because the foundation of our religion as Christians is the story of God. And what I mean by that is we will never come to James chapter 1, verse 27 and even care about this stuff or have any motivation to obey it unless we understand the story of God. So truly, our call to obedience to care for orphans is grounded in a big, massive, overwhelmingly gracious story. But let's start way, way back. So God's big story is that He is a father for the fatherless. This is our contention today. This is the one of the things that I want to prove to you today, that, that God's big story is about Him being a father for the fatherless. So we're going to just carry this forward like a story in, in various acts, A-C-T-S. Here's the first one, Act 1. Act 1 of the story, if you're going to understand it, is the love of the Father. The first act of the story is grounded in the character of God Himself. The Apostle John, the one who, who devotedly loved his Savior, says this about God. God is love. Turn with me, if you don't mind, to John chapter 17. As you're turning there, I want you to think about this. God is love. Well, before the world began, before He spoke it into existence by the word of His mouth, before anything was that is, before anything was that is, what we see around us, was God love. Because there weren't people out there to love. I think John chapter 17 helps us to understand this. 
This is Jesus' high priestly prayer. It's right before he will be arrested and crucified, and he's praying to the Father to give him strength and to accomplish the purpose that that he has come to accomplish, which is to redeem humanity, and through that, Jesus will receive glory. Notice in verse 9, Jesus says, I am praying for them, his disciples. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. I do not ask for these only, verse 20, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. So how can John in his first epistle say something so sweeping about God, that God is love, that this is his very defining characteristic? John does not say God became love, that God decided to love. In fact, I think that's often how we think about the Almighty. I think that we we tend to think of Him as this sort of robotic deity in the heavens. That's at least one way that we look at Him. He He has calculations, and each calculation is sort of mystical to us, but it's very mechanical. It doesn't feel very gracious. It doesn't feel warm. He's very different than us, and He's calculatingly moving the world in such a way that that he gets some sort of glee out of just seeing things work out in perfection and harmony. Others of us, I think, view God through another kind of lens, the kind of lens that God God wants something from us, that that God made us to be like little slaves and And if we do enough for Him and work hard enough for Him that He smiles down on us and occasionally throws us a bone, He sends rain on our crops, He'll send some sunshine when we're good enough. This viewpoint on God is characterized in most of the religions of the world. When God sends rain on the crops, He must be pleased with us whenever the land is parched and mothers cannot bear children, the deities must be very displeased with us. So we will do things to buy Him off. We will, we will dance. We will cut ourselves. We will sacrifice our children. Humans throughout history have done drastically uh, egregious things to try to buy their deity off because that's how they view God, because that's what they are like. And so what we often end up doing is projecting our own characteristics, our fallen characteristics as orphans in this broken orphanage of the world back upon the Father. But God is not a mechanical automaton. Likewise, God is not a mean, 
selfish father. Instead, God himself is love. It is, it is who he is. He has always been, and by that I mean his existence. There is no beginning to God. And when you try to wrap your mind around that, your mind starts melting. How do you explain that? I, I don't know how to explain that, but God has always been. And in his eternal being, he has always been the same. God is never becoming. God has always been the same. That likewise is mind-numbing. But God has always been, and God is never becoming. God has always been, and he's always been love. And this is why our God expresses himself as a trinity. You see, the Trinity is not this sort of esoteric, mysterious, distinctly Christian doctrine. Now, it is distinctly Christian, and it is mysterious, but it's much more than that. You see, understanding the Trinity is not just something for the theological professionals. It's not for that large volume on your, on your bookshelf somewhere that you bought for one of your religious studies classes that you remember like taking a test on, and, and you remember that, that Christianity is monotheistic but still Trinitarian, and that's what makes it distinct. It, it's more than just professional theology. It's more than just mysterious stuff to make your mind go numb. You see, the Trinity itself is good news for us, because within the Trinity, we are reminded that there is unity that each member of the Trinity is one and they share the same essence, yet they are distinct in personhood, and in that distinction in personhood, they have forever loved one another. In just a moment, we will explore that more, but that explains why the world is like it is. I want to say something to you, and I want you to just to digest this for a moment. Why are there human relationships? Marriage, parents and children, family members, friends. Why? Because they are the projection of the very nature of the Trinity upon those whom He created in His image. Ants, falcons, giraffes, pine trees, geological formations, those things are created by God to reflect how great He is, but those things were not created in His image. Humans alone bear the image of God, and one of the things that is distinctly God-like about us is that we, we relate to one another. That is why our relationships can bring us the greatest joys. Remember your wedding day or the day that you, you met your best friend or the day that you and your friend took a great journey or an adventure together or when you had your first child or when you grew up and realized just what your parents had sacrificed for you and you loved them all the more or the day that a loved one departed from you or the day when a relationship with a dear friend was, was severed. You see, relationships can bring us the greatest joy and relationships can bring us the greatest misery and pain. 
But that's because we were created in the image of God, and the image of God in His Trinitarianism is to to love each member of Himself, if I can say it that way, and because of that, we love one another too. The very nature of God is to to love, and that is what Jesus is saying here in John chapter 17. He's asking God to love through Him, through the Son, the world around Him, because that kind of love is the overflow of the love that the Father and the Son shared before there ever were any of these image bearers. There's a few books I'm going to recommend to you at the end today, and I don't typically do that because that feels kind of academic, but I think it's important because I want to introduce these ideas to you today or at least further illuminate them, and then I want you to go home and I want you to dive into them more. But there's a book that I'm going to recommend to you called Delighting in the Trinity by Mike Reeves. Mike Reeves is a British guy, brilliant, but super winsome, funny, great to listen to. And Whitney and I were at a conference recently on orphan care at which he spoke. I begin reading this book. One of the things that he says in this book is that, that the love of God is, is much like a, a cascade. If you've ever been in a beautiful place in the mountains, one of the things that you find is there are elevation changes is that as rivers form in the tops of mountains through springs and snowfall and so forth, they inevitably go downward. I mean, that makes sense with gravity, right? And the, the higher elevation at which you find yourself and the more geological formations that you see around you means that there will inevitably be pretty big waterfalls. One of the things about a waterfall is that it cannot help but fall down. That's how God designed the world with, with the laws of gravity. And the further downstream you go, the more streams which feed the mainstream, the, the cascade becomes stronger and more powerful and overwhelming. If you've ever seen Niagara Falls, it's the confluence of, of a great and mighty river which pours over into this chasm and flows into another lake. But, but that, that water is powerful and overwhelming. And we delight to see these things. But much like the rest of creation, there's something to be learned from this which is more than just simple awe at the power of nature. The power of a cascading waterfall reminds us of the overflowing love of God. Reeves makes this contention in the book. And what has happened throughout all of history, and even prehistory, is that there has been an overflowing amount of love, a cascading of love that came from the Father to the Son, which is why God made the world. So the act that we are now going to discuss, Act 2, is that the family expands. And this is what the cascade does. The cascade flows from the Father to the Son, and to include the Spirit, through the Spirit to God's people. It, it cannot help but do that. Reeves has said, this man who wrote this book, that before the world began, the Son so delighted in the Father and so shared this cascading delight in love that He could not wait to come to the world and overflow His love into the world like the cascade moving downwards 
so that we would likewise enjoy that love. And that's why God created. That's why God made the world. So we've established the fact in Acts chapter 1 that the very nature of the Trinity is to love. That, that's who the Trinity is. I could say much more about that than I want to, but we'll come back to that another time. But in Genesis chapters 2 and 3, we find this, this story, this cascading loving story coming into fruition. So turn there with me, please. We find in chapter 1 that God makes humanity and chapter 2, we find more about the making of humanity. In verse 15 of chapter 2, Moses records for us, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now, you may look at that as a strict father restraining his son, that God's a killjoy. Is God really an overflowing, cascading river if he's a killjoy? That's not what God's doing here. By restraining his son, God is loving his son. Much like if you take your children to hike somewhere and you're on a precipice or on a cliff and they run toward the edge, you do not say to yourself if that edge drops down a thousand vertical feet, well, let's let them go explore because it will be good for them. They'll learn a lesson. No, you run after them and you scream and you tackle them because you don't want them to die. And it may bother them, and it may annoy them that you have restrained them, but you have rescued them from certain perishing. That's what God's doing here to Adam. Adam had not yet sinned, but God says to Adam, if you do this, if you go after what I am withholding from you, you will die, and I don't want you to die. And isn't it interesting that that's exactly what the serpent finally comes and tempts them with? But we'll talk about that in just a moment. You see, the Father is love. The cascading love within the Trinity now pours into the world, and the world becomes the object of His affections. That means that God made the world to enjoy Him, It's hard as a parent to always delight in your children, right? I mean, often we don't, especially when you have little kids. I mean, little kids are hard. When they're first born, they don't sleep very well, or when they do, they sleep at the wrong times. Um, They cry, and the only way to get them to stop crying is to go feed them or to change their diaper, and that's messy and it stinks. Um, Eventually, they grow up into toddlers, and they break your stuff. And then eventually they grow into like, you know, primary school age and they fight and, and they're annoying sometimes. They make annoying noises, right? Um, they still smell. They leave their clothes everywhere. Um, they leave pretzel crumbs on the couch that slip down into the cracks and leave pretzel dust everywhere. Um, whenever you buy a new car and one of the spouses, I'm not speaking personal experience, I'm just speaking hypothetically, decides that the car becomes a great place for snacks, 
then you're constantly like scraping gummy worms off the edge of the car and so forth. And then they become, become teenagers and, and their, their hormones are raging and, and, and they're inconsolable and, and they're nuts, right? And then they reach like college age and they think that you're dumb. And then eventually um, they get married and they don't have any money, so you've got to give them half of yours. I mean, kids are costly. But there are days throughout the process where you really enjoy them. Uh, they do a random act of kindness. Um, they, they, they give their resources to somebody because they thought of it. You didn't tell them to. They, they come out of the blue and they just want to hang out with you. And whenever you actually put your phone down and turn the TV off, you delight in just being with them because they delight in being with you. Often this happens on, happens on vacation, I think, because we're sort of less busy and we can focus on them. And it's good for families just to get away alone and turn the phones off and not be with other people. And, and in those moments, sometimes there's, there's these memories you build with that child and you just delight in being, being their parent. There's spiritual milestones with your kids where they come to grips with the gospel and you see them receive Christ in faith and you see the fruit growing in them. There's moments where you see them form relationships and you see them sacrifice and forgive. and th- Those are brilliantly beautiful moments. Unfortunately, because we are selfish as parents, those moments are probably too far and too few between. But they are there. And in those moments, you just delight in being a parent. One of the things that my children love to do is to hear the story of their births. They think that's really cool. So we tell them from time to time. So we talk about how mommy and we go way back. Like we talk about how mommy and daddy fell in love. Um, I, I've always been kind of a romantic and I always dreamed of having this really beautiful wife. And I knew that I couldn't get a beautiful wife because I was beautiful. I mean, that wasn't going to happen because just look at me, right? So I knew that if I could develop a good sense of humor and have a couple other good qualities, maybe I could hook one. It was, I mean, the, the dreams were in doubt, but I tried hard. Well, it happened. I don't know how it happened. Um, I, I think I had a few decent qualities, and I hooked one. I mean, I mean, she's gorgeous, right? And so I tell the story to my kids about how even before I met her, I, I dreamed of her, and then when, we, I mean, I'm being serious, and then we met, and, and we fell in love, and after a long time of dating and engagement and marriage, then we had our first son, and and it was such an amazing story, and we delighted in him. And then we had our second son, and we delighted in him. And they love to hear these stories. Our family expanded because we loved each other, my wife and I, and we wanted to love other people. That's what God is like. But, but way, way, way better. What would it be like to be a parent that delighted in your kids every day, whether they were good or bad? We do that sometimes, but we don't do that most days. We're so caught up in us that we fail to be caught up in the kids that we're supposed to love. But God expanded His family because He couldn't help but do it. You see that? The very nature of God is to love, and so He made a world where the cascade keeps falling down because that's what God is like. So act one is about the very nature of the Father, that He is love. 
And act two is the family expanding. But act three is the family broken. And that's what Genesis 3 is about. We've studied this passage, of course, many times. But Satan, if we can say this, a fallen son in one way or another, Satan, a fallen son, hates these new image bearers. And yes, pun intended, he is hell-bent. He is hell-bent on ruining the new image bearer's relationship with God. So what does he do? He comes to them and he says to them about their father, your father is a killjoy. The reason he doesn't want you to eat from that tree is because he knows that when you do, you'll actually be more satisfied. That's the essence of Satan's temptation. And before Adam and Eve actually eat from the tree, perhaps the first sin is internal. I have a feeling the first sin was not actually biting into the fruit. That the first snap of the apple or whatever it was, was not the fall. But the fall was internal. And that initially the first sin were the children doubting the goodness the cascading, satisfying love of the, of the Father. That was probably the first sin. Satan tempted them where they were vulnerable, if I can say it that way. He knew how to go after them because he knew that's how he had fallen. So he went from a lover of the Father to a hater of the Father And what he wants now is to develop for himself his own family that will also hate that father. He wants to create a clan war. And that's what he does. And so now he has some minions. He has some slaves. He has some children, if we can say it that way, who come over to his side, to his family. And they begin hating the Father too. This is why in our human relationships that the ones that you love the most can hurt you the most. This is why in our human relationships the ones that at one time we loved intensely we can actually end up despising. That's why Satan was like he was. He went from one who enjoyed the love of the cascading overflow of the love of the Father to one who absolutely despised the Father and wanted to do everything to hurt the Father. And so what he does is he hurts the image bearers. And Adam and Eve turn into haters of God, at least temporarily as well. The family is broken. I want to read you something. Um, from another book that I'm going to recommend to you here in a few moments, but it's by Russell Moore. It's called Adopted for Life. So he paints this hypothetical scenario. He says, imagine for a moment that you're adopting a child. As you meet with a social worker in the last stage of the process, you're told that this 12-year-old has been in and out of psychotherapy since he was three. He persists in burning things and attempting repeatedly to skin kittens alive. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to not say much more than that because he's more graphic than this because he's trying to make a point. The social worker says some other really troubling things about the child, but she doesn't really fill you in on all the details. So she continues with the family history of the child. The boy's father, grandfather, great-grandfather, and great-great-grandfather all had histories of violence 
ranging from spousal abuse to serial murder. Each of them ended life the same way, death by suicide, each found hanging from a rope of blankets in his respective prison cell. Think for a minute. Would you want this child? If you did adopt him, wouldn't you keep your eye on him as he played with your other children? Would you watch him nervously as he looks at the butcher knife on the kitchen table? This is, this is uncomfortable, isn't it? There's a point to this. Would you leave the room as he watched a movie on television with your daughter with the lights out? Well, he's you, and he's me. That's what the gospel is telling us. Our birth father has fangs, and left to ourselves, we'll show ourselves to be as serpentine as he is. That's what happened in the fall. Satan became our father. And this explains, of course, why there are so many broken families with broken fathers. Because when the eternal cascading love of Almighty God was replaced, was discarded and replaced with love for something far and fear, we became twisted. Rather than having eyes that gaze upon the Almighty and enjoy His presence, our gaze turned inward, and through that we became satisfied with broken, marginalized, twisted things. We ourselves became twisted, and though we do not see ourselves that way, that's why the world is twisted. And that's when the world became a giant orphanage. Russell Moore, who wrote that passage I just read to you, he and his wife adopted two little boys from Russia some several years ago. Uh, Moore has been on faculty at Southern Seminary and now heads up a, uh, a uh, office, I think in D.C. now, for the Southern Baptist Convention doing policy and advocacy work on behalf of evangelicals. But, but personally speaking, they have, they have adopted two little boys. He tells the story of going to, to Russia, two or three trips, I can't remember, to get their sons. And finally, a second or third trip, whichever it was, whenever he picked them up from the orphanage, uh, and just to give a little context, these, these two little boys were somewhere between one and two, I think, at this point. Their cribs were in a dark and dank room. Um, they, they lay in their cribs in their own feces and vomit. It's not unlikely that they had actually never been lifted from those cribs. And when the parents, when Russell and his wife finally took those boys out of the orphanage and walked out the front door, that is the first time those children had ever seen the light of day. They take the children and put them in the car. I don't know if they had rented a cab or something like that. And the children literally turned around in the back seat with arms outstretched through the rear windshield, grasping to go back into their dark and dank dungeon. Why is that? Because that's all they had ever known. They found some measure of comfort in the darkness and the dankness and the brokenness of their former house of prison. But they did not know that joy awaited them, a dad who would love them, a mother who would comfort them, a home where they would feel safe, a new life. We are content in our brokenness. 
But because the love of the Father is the grand reality of all, because He made the world the way He made it, He was not... He was not surprised by the brokenness. He was not surprised by the orphans wanting to stay in the orphanage. And he came after them, and he promises to heal the family. You see, Acts chapter 4 is the healing of the family, and he hints at this right away in chapter 3. You see, God was not surprised that his children became orphans or the children of another father. And so he comes in verse 15 and he says, I'm not going to leave it that way. He says to the serpent, the one who had broken the relationship, the new father of the children, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And this is the first promise that God is going to make everything come untrue. He's going to go take those children and bring them back to Himself and say, no, you're mine. That's the healing of the children. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. Turn with me, if you don't mind, to Hosea. If you have trouble finding Hosea, you'll find Hosea right after Daniel. If you have trouble finding Daniel, you'll find Daniel right after Ezekiel. So this is a good chance maybe to write yourself a note and say, I will learn the minor prophets in order I will learn the minor prophets in order. I will learn the minor prophets in order. But that's for another time. So, so the story of Hosea is a very compelling story. It's a difficult story, and it is made to be very difficult to illustrate some amazing truths. Hosea was a prophet. Hosea did not have a wife. So God decides He's going to give Hosea a wife. And if you're a prophet and you're, you're like communing with God in this special way, you're probably thinking to yourself, well, I'm, I'm wifeless and I would really like a wife, God's coming through. That's really good news. Except that it didn't seem such good news, like such good news whenever Hosea learned the shape of this wife. So I, I didn't do online dating. I know a few of you have. I just met my beautiful wife by accident, and she stuck with me. But I've understood enough about online dating to know that like, you get a profile of a person, right? And so a few of you are actually sitting here today married as a result of having done this. And so you got the profile of, of your prospective you know, dating partner who is now your spouse. And, and you saw on paper what they were like, like the things they liked, the things they didn't like, the things they believed, the things they hated. And you probably went through a bunch of those. Some of them you rejected, some of you accepted, and now you're sitting here today as a result of having accepted one amazing profile. So here's the profile um, God gave Hosea. He said, you're going to marry this woman, and by the way, her name is Gomer. Seems like a strange name to us, but maybe that was attractive back then. And he says, you're going to marry Gomer, and and by the way, she is going to commit adultery. I mean, Hosea has to be thinking, well, first of all, that just stinks as a man. But also, my job kind of depends on this. Like, I'm supposed to be relatively holy, and I'm supposed to be like your servant who speaks your truth to your people. How can I do that if my, if my wife abandons me for another man? But Hosea knew that God was smart, and so he, he obeys the celestial matchmaker. What's interesting about this, if you know the story, is that she does just what God says that she'll do. She, she cheats on him. But in the process, there's three kids in their family. In verse 4, the first one is named Jezreel, which is a reminder of how um, God is punishing Israel for, 
for what they had done in the past. There's another child named No Mercy. The third child is called Not My People. Now, that, that doesn't sound very good, right? I mean, most of us pick names today because they sound cool. Like one of the things our generation does today is pick old names because that sounds really cool, like we're clever and vintage. Um, it's interesting you can tell generations of kids by, by the way that all your kids' classmates are named, like it goes in waves. But it's interesting as, as you hear Hosea's kids' names, which again, I, he's just obeying God and he has to be thinking to himself, when's this going to stop? I mean, this, this story seems tough for me. But we, we, we can probably draw a conclusion that the second and third children, no mercy, and not my people. And by the way, if you're looking for that, you can find that in verses 6 and 9. It's probably relatively likely that the second and third children's, no mercy and not my people, actually came through Gomer's illicit relationship. In other words, they were not Hosea's biological children. And the reason we say this is in chapter 2, verse 4, God says to, to Hosea, Upon her children also I will have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore, verse 5. She who can see them has acted shamefully. So it's not at all unlikely that the second two kids actually do not belong to Hosea biologically. If you know the story in chapters 2 and 3, God tells Hosea to go get his wife. Now, back in that day, if, if, you, if you cheated on your husband, essentially what happened is you were brought into the market square and you were shamed in front of the whole town. In fact, it may well be that, that Gomer was, was also about to be sold into slavery because of her sin, that that was her punishment. She, she was no good. She was refuse. God tells Hosea to show up on the day whenever she's to be publicly shamed, and he actually buys her back. So what you would think you would do if your spouse did this to you openly, especially if you were like the man of God in the town, because that's what Hosea was, that you would stay home on that day out of dignity to maintain your integrity. But not only did Hosea not stay home, he showed up at the public shaming, and then he actually spent his money to get her back. If you know, the point of the story is God's using Hosea's literal family life to depict a grand spiritual reality, and that is that God's people, Israel, they are like spiritual adulterers. They have turned their back on the, the one who is good, the one who is kind, the one who gives joy, the one who, is, who has never done anything to hurt his spouse, because Israel is sort of depicted as a spouse for God. There's, there's nothing irreverent or sexual about that in any sort of um, uh, nasty way. It's just it's a way of God saying, I love you intensely. That, that's what the metaphor is. But she had turned from him. So God chooses Hosea to be a, a living picture of what, of what had happened when Israel rejected God. It didn't make any sense. It was foolish. And yet... Hosea buys her back and brings her back to himself and raises these children that were not his own. No mercy, not my people. And what ends up happening is Gomer gets mercy, but, but no mercy, the child, gets mercy. Not my people. And Hosea maybe was thinking, that's not my, that's not my child. That's now my child. 
Hosea's very life becomes a picture of the cascading love of the Father never giving up on His children and running after them to heal them. Turn with me, please, to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27, Jesus is judged. He is handed over to be crucified, not because of any guilt, for He had no guilt, but His very life indicted the hyper-religion of the Jewish authorities, and they hated Him for it. So because they were so, so bent in on themselves, because the Jewish religious authorities were, were gazing in on themselves and had not learned the story of their forefather Hosea, because they thought that they should be recipients of God's favor because they were so religious and so morally upright, and all that was a sham. They could not see that they were actually twisted, poor, blind, pitiable, and naked. They delivered Jesus over to be crucified. Notice verse 45 of Matthew 27. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land, a, a, a way of creation itself experiencing the brokenness and darkness of that day as the eternal Son of God took sin upon Himself. About the ninth hour, three hours later, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For the first time in all of eternity, which again, remember, had no beginning, an eternity during which the Trinity had experienced perfect love and harmony. Now, again, we get glimpses of this from time to time on our wedding day when our children are born, on the good days when we're good parents, good friends. But what if you had a relationship that was characterized every single moment by perfect harmony and bliss? That's what the Son had enjoyed with the Father. We saw him pray it back in John 17. That, that's, what, that's all he'd ever known. But the seed that we saw that was promised who would come to crush the head of the deceiving serpent, the sun now hangs on a tree and becomes a curse, the curse which we deserve to bear. And the eternal Son of God becomes for the first time fatherless to make us who were formerly fatherless once again children of God. That's the story brought to its pinnacle. This is the grand pinnacle of the story. That on that day, the Son of God became sonless to make us sons. And this is why we talk about the gospel all the time. The gospel is the good news that though we deserve to be punished eternally for our sins, there is one who came to be punished, not because he deserved it, but because he loved us. And our God became our brother. And He hung on a tree upon which we deserve to be hung. 
and died so we don't have to. Our eternal brother brought us back to the Father. And that's why in Romans chapter 8, where Greg read to us a bit ago, you can turn there with me, that is why we now join in the cry of the Son, Abba, Father. The Son cries out from the cross, Dear Father, this pain is excruciating. But the painful, mournful cry of despair allows us to join in a cry of joy. And that's why in verse 15 of Romans 8, Paul says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That's what the cry of the cross brought us. And the family is healed. But the reality is this world is still an orphanage. And there's a whole lot of people that are rejecting the cascading, overflowing, only satisfying love of the Father for the serpentine lies of the devil. But the cross reminds us that it need not be that way. The cross reminds us that we can once again have a family. And by the way, that's, that's not the end. For one day the family will be reunited. Turn with me please to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21, we find what the redemptive work of Christ on the cross will accomplish one day. Look in verse 5. He who is seated on the throne of Revelation 21 said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Fatherless, get a father. That's the story of redemption. If global estimates are accurate, and most countries self-report, so as far as we know, they're basically accurate. There are currently in our world 153 million orphans. That's roughly half the size of the United States. Many of those 153 million orphans are single orphans. That's a technical designation, which means that they have lost one parent, often due to neglect or disease or war or genocide. Still an overwhelming number of that 153 million are double orphans. They have lost both parents. Anecdotally, my brother and his wife are adopting right now from Uganda. The two children, they're deciding between one and two right now, but the two children that may become theirs were found wandering around the border between Rwanda and Uganda. And I think they were two and three at the time. Nobody knows which side of the border they came from. Nobody knows who the parents were. They were just on their own. There are millions of orphans like that all around the world. Notice here in Revelation 21, there's no lack of food. There's no 
There's no dark, unsafe nights. There's no coldness. There's no abandonment anymore. This is perfect relationship. The reason that we care, or should I say the reason that we should care about James 1.27, which is where we started today, and caring for orphans. Remember, pure, undefiled religion. Not the worthless stuff we often engage ourselves in, but stuff that matters. The reason we care is because that's what's happened for us. And the prospect for us is that one day the fatherhood of God, which we are already enjoying, will be literally enjoyed because we will be with Him. And our brother Jesus will usher us into His presence and say, this is the Father, let's enjoy Him for forever together. So because God has sent our brother to save us and to make us once again children, and the prospect for us is absolute perfect reunification with him forever, we should care for orphans. How will we do that? We have purposely waited to talk about that in two weeks. Um, Next week, we're going to talk about some general child-rearing things. How do you raise your kids to know and love God, to be responsible citizens and all that kind of stuff? So we'll talk about general child-rearing next week. Um, And then two weeks from now, we're going to have some of our adoptive families come up here instead of a sermon, and they're going to share their stories. How did they come to the conclusion to care for orphans in the way that they did? What have they learned along the way? What would they say to you if you would be considering it? What are some other ways beyond adoption that we can care for orphans as a church? We would do it next week because we would like to do it consecutive weeks, but we couldn't work it out schedule-wise with some of the families that are going to participate. So, so in two weeks, we're going to give a lot of practical outlining of, of how we can actually do something with what we talked about today. I wanted to give the theological underpinnings. I wanted to tell you the story to help you understand what your story should be. So here's God's story, and here's how we join in the story. So we're going to do that in two weeks, the the practical outworking of how our individual lives as families that make up this broader family within this church, how our family stories intersect with God's big story. That'll be in two weeks. Here's a few books I told you I would tell you about. First of all, Delighting in the Trinity by Mike Reeves. This is not specifically about orphan care, but it's really foundational for understanding the character of God. And if you don't get this, you'll never really have a heart for orphans. So, Delighting in the Trinity by Mike Reeves. The second one is by a guy named Dan Kruver. He's the editor of this book. And within this book, you find articles from Piper and Scotty Smith and other evangelical leaders. It's called Reclaiming Adoption. So, I would, I would commend this to your attention. Dan Kruver is doing amazing work right now uh, for the sake of the kingdom and drawing attention to orphan care, both domestically and globally. And the third one is called Adopted for Life by Russ Moore. Um, if, you're, if you're interested in seeing what God wants for your family and developing a heart to obey what we see in James 1.27, those are the three I would tell you to start with. And I hope that some of you will. Even if you don't feel God's calling you to adoption, uh, He is calling you to care for orphans. And so you need to learn and marinate in this stuff. And I hope that you'll take the opportunity to do that.